And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Colorado Governor Jared Polis is one of the most unusual politicians in America today. The gay Jewish son of anti-Vietnam War protesters who turned a greeting card business they operated out of a traveling van into a digital empire. Polis himself made a fortune as an entrepreneur before he was 25 and then started a political climb that has not missed a rung. Along the way, he's established a reputation as a Democrat with a libertarian streak. So yes to abortion rights, gay rights, and the legalization of weed, but also yes to charter schools and cooperation across party lines. And notably, he stood apart from other Democratic governors on the pace of COVID reopenings and repeal of mask mandates. All in all, an interesting guy whose actions, more than words, are creating some buzz. Here's that conversation. Governor Polis, it's really good to be with you. I have to say, I'm closing into my 500th episode of The Axe Files, all practicing just to get to this one. But your uh, your story is is really one of the more unusual stories among elected officials, and so welcome, first of all. Well, let's just call let's just call this your 500th episode, David. Let's <laughs> let's uh, bring it home. That's half a half a millennia of episodes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let, let's just talk a little bit about your your family history because it, it it it's so intriguing. First of all, you and I have something in common. My my father and his family came over from uh, Eastern Europe, from Ukraine, in the Jewish immigrants in the early part of the 20th century. And I know that's your family members came over as well. Yeah, our, our family came over mostly 1905 to 1906 time frame on both sides from areas that are now part of Ukraine. Then it yes. was Poland, of course, yes. the greater Poland, yeah. the Pale Settlement, uh, great-grandparents. And so my my grandparents were all, or three out of four, were 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 first generation. In, in one of the cases, their their parents came over just before they had them. And where where were they located? Uh, I, all, well, you know, all, all New York area, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Ellis Island, they all came over, and and, and that sort of thing. We, we did the genealogy research. We saw the you know the lines yes. uh, in the book over there. Pretty fun for those who haven't done it. I'd encourage you to yeah do that. And uh, they, Brooklyn, uh, my, my grandmother, my late grandmother, June, just passed away a few years ago, was born in Brooklyn. Her parents were immigrants. Her, her dad was an immigrant. Her mom was, uh, we're not sure. She either came when she was two years old or she was born here. We're trying to figure her, my great grandma on that side. She's the one who might've been a native. Uh, and then uh, my mom grew up in Peekskill, New York. So she was born in Brooklyn and then her family moved out to Peekskill in the Catskills when she was just a few years old. And my dad's born and raised in the Bronx, Parkchester. Ah. And your parents met at Princeton, is that right? So my uh, my mom went to Ryder School in New Jersey, and my dad uh, was at grad school at Princeton, and so uh, that's how they met. They were both active in the anti-war movement. Um, one could one could say they they were part of the hippie movement, and uh, I picture. I saw that. the I saw some pictures of uh, your folks back in the day, being uh, I'm a, a couple of years younger than that, but. I remember the era, and they looked very much of the moment there. Oh yeah, they had flowers painted on their car that they drove across the country, and you know my uh, my father wasn't drafted because he had a deferral because he was getting a PhD in physics at the time, 
And uh, my mother was teaching English in New Jersey public schools in, uh, in Newark. So this is the interesting thing. I, I want to get back to them and the anti-war movement, because I know your dad got a broken jaw out of the deal. But w- what's interesting to me is he got a PhD in physics, and they ended up selling greeting cards out of a painted van traveling around the country. How do you make that journey from one thing to another? Well, my, my father, as I said, grew up in the Bronx, but then he actually commuted into Manhattan for high school at uh, LaGuardia High School, you know, the fame high school, so yes. the music and arts magnet school yes. uh, for art. He was a very, he's a very talented artist. And so uh, he would take the subway in every day at, you know, 14, 15. From his perspective, he was very happy to get out of the Bronx. He said it was a very rough neighborhood <laughs> at the time. So he went to high school in Manhattan. Um, I think it was about a 40, 45 minute commute each way. And, and, uh, so he was a very, a very, uh, talented artist. He, you know, worked with airbrush watercolor in the early days. Now he does most of his art on the computer, like, like most of us. Uh, and then my mother, uh, as a writer. And so she was an English major and, and that was always her passion. And so she, they really paired her poetry. Uh, her name, Susan Poloschutz. She's actually America's, you know, best, re- most read living American poet, right? A, a distinction we're very proud of her for her work graces. Um, millions of books that have been sold and, and greeting cards. And then my father does the artwork. So he took this detour into physics. How did the yeah. artist become the physicist? Yeah, so you're, you should be interviewing him. He's wonderful rather than me <laughs> on this. But um, I grew up with these stories, of course. So yeah, he, you know, two passions, right? Physics and art were his passions. And so um, he did go to the, the Magnet School for Art in, in New York. He always kept up with that. Actually, it was physics when he got his PhD that first brought them to Colorado. That's why I was born in Colorado. My dad got a job out of grad school at NOAA, the mm-hmm. Oceanographic and Atmospheric. Uh, they have a major facility in Boulder. He was uh, a part of the group that studied sunspots uh, as an astrophysicist. And, and, and they wanted to move out west. But that was really what, that's why I, and I was able to move to Colorado in 1970. I was born five years later in 1975. You know, art was always a passion, right? The physics was something he enjoyed. It was a way, you know, a job. And I think that the transition was, can we do something we love, art and, and, and poetry, and actually, you know, not starve? <laughs> uh, and so, and, and they were able to, you know, they, 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 he didn't quit his job right away. He worked at, at NOAA, but they uh, made some silkscreen posters in their basement on Pine Street in Boulder. And they drove around uh, the country during his time off in a van and they, they sold enough of them to really be able to figure out, you know, we're going to take this jump here and uh, we're, we're going to support ourselves with the arts, uh, which was, you know, obviously taking a big risk. But that's what America's all about. They were at Woodstock. They were. They have, uh, they have, let's call it mixed memories. They both said it was rainy and swampy and they didn't even get close enough to hear the music, but they were absolutely there. They said it was a miserable experience and they tell us about it all the time. I, maybe they got close enough to hear it in the distance, but they said it was like a, a big swamp and their car got stuck and, and it was rainy and um, they, they shared that experiences with us growing up. You used to ride around with them in their van. You used to be part of the sales force when you were a little kid. Yeah, so um, uh, after, I, I, of course, there's, you know, they, they, they went with, they took me wherever they went. And then after a few years, uh, my mom pulled in her mom, my, my late grandmother, June, who I mentioned, to be the sales manager. My, my, my grandmother, June, had been uh, a real estate agent in Peekskill, New York. That was her job. Uh, she, she worked retail, you know, for many years in department stores, but then she got a real estate license. Actually, at the time, David, that was surprisingly a male-dominated field in the 1950s. People think real estate agents, they think many of them are women, but she was actually the first w- woman real estate agent in Peekskill at the time. 
uh, to help people find homes. I guess most careers, sadly, were dominated by men at that time. Maybe maybe not teachers, but most others were. So uh, she was in sales as a real estate agent. And so my, my mom called her and dad, and they said, we need you to help with this company. Uh, she moved out to Boulder. Uh, she was recently widowed. My I, I I, I hardly knew my my late grandfather, David Polis. He died when I was one or two years old. I, I grew up with my father's parents. That's a whole other great story. They were part of that kind of a socialist New York City University scene. I, I know. Well, I grew up there with that scene. So Yeah, that yeah. was very much that. My, my grandfather was a postal worker. He was very active in the Postal Workers Union. My mm -hmm. dad's dad, my grandma Ruth, was a post social worker in New York. And in any event, getting back to the other one. So, uh, yeah, so June, my grandmother came out as a sales manager. And so between her and my parents sort of alternating, taking care of me. I was grew up at trade shows across the country, and uh, I really kept up with that work as I grew up. I would I would travel and help them set up, and and uh, and, and and you know, in Dallas and Chicago and New York stationery show in L.A. and I uh, really got to see a lot of the country at a young age. I want to just note here, and we'll come back to it, that the company they started was called Blue Mountain Arts, and. Um, I think it's a familiar name to a lot of Americans at this point, but we'll come back and discuss why. I want to talk about how you became so, uh, at a very early age, interested in politics. Uh, we mentioned that, I mentioned that your dad and your folks participated in anti-war demonstrations and your dad at one point got his jaw broken. So I assume politics is, uh, was something that was discussed around the house. Yeah, I, I would say so. My uh, my parents were active in the anti-war movement. I mean, they saw too many of their, you know, high school friends drafted and and even lost. And and obviously, it's very. We have to realize now how personal it was for that generation, right, David? I mean, this was literally the kids that they grew up with, you know, being sent off and and some of them sent home in, in body bags uh, in Vietnam. Uh, and they were active uh, in that SDS and and uh, demonstrations. Uh, my my dad in the, the Pentagon had his jaw broken during the. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were very, um, uh, as I said, my my mom grew up in a uh, kind of moderate to conservative household. Her, her dad, my late grandfather, who I didn't know very well, was um, kind of a liberal Republican, which were quite you know common at that in New York at the time. I don't know if yes, they're there you anymore. Can, you can see, yes, you can find them at the, they're actually on display at the New, New York uh, Museum yeah. of Natural yeah. History. And, I think they're stuffed and on display there. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. And then on my, on my dad's side, they were, they were much more kind of, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, at the time uh, of, of that elk. But they, uh, this, so both, both of them were, were very strongly, you know, believed against the war. That, that was the main issue they were engaged with. I, I'd say, you know, I grew up, I have two siblings. I'm the oldest. My, my sister's four years younger. My younger brother is four years younger than that. So, uh, you know, certainly discussing issues like the environment and, and other issues that we cared about and, and volunteered in um, was something that was, you know, around the kitchen table important to us. Well, but you were trying to, this means something to me because I was sort of the same way. I was like uh, involved in campaigns when I was nine years old in New York City, 10 years old and so on. But that was your story. Yeah. So that was, that was me driving that. My parents were not involved with candidate-based campaigns. So what, did, right? what, what, drew, what drew you yeah. to it? I, I mean, I think it was the translation of the, my parents were involved, you know, the discussions around the issues, right? And, and, and advocacy groups. I, I remember uh, there was one, um, men's mothers embracing nuclear disarmament, right? So that was one my mom was involved with. So, the, the, you know, the, but such causes, I, I, I was, they were not into candidates. I mean, you know, they voted, I'm sure, mm -hmm. and all that. But uh, I, I kind of was more into the connection and said, this really matters who the elected officials are. So I volunteered 
I was the you know, only one in my family. My parents were not like putting up signs. And you figured this out when you were eight, nine years old. Yeah. Yeah. Nine, 10, my parents would take me, I think, um, city council races and, and, um, uh, arguing before the, you know, to save a Canyon near our home. Yes. And, no, yeah. I, I want to ask yeah. you about that. I think I was 12, because, uh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You're 12 years old. There was a, uh, city council hearing, uh, a developer wanted to develop a Canyon and this was a Canyon in which you played Yeah, and you went and you spoke at the city council meeting. And according to the newspaper accounts of it, you helped sway the council against giving this developer a permit at 12 years old. Well, I think I was probably more persuasive because I had the voice of innocence at 12, David. So like the people who wanted to develop it, some of them were arguing that it was a nuisance. They said there's like skunks and there were foxes and, you know, and, and bird droppings or whatever and, and, and so forth. And then I got up and I talked you know, on behalf of the kids. I said, we like the foxes and like the skunks and it's the only <laughs> ones we see around. And, you know, it, it was... Uh, I just was speaking from the heart, of course, and, and that, you know, still there to this day. And you were a, quite a prodigy in school, and you, uh, you wound up at Princeton when you were 16, following in your dad's footsteps, I guess. And you studied political science. You spent the summer in Moscow trading commodities when you were 17. How, how did that happen? I did study the humanities, and I really enjoyed history, political science. I, I took uh, graduate, Princeton was very good about it, but I took graduate school courses. Uh, even as a freshman, this is really fun. I took one from somebody who later went on, David, to become a, you probably heard of her. She's a really um, well-known conservative scholar now, Dr. Carol Swain, mm -hmm. uh, if you come across her. Mm -hmm. She was a professor of mine at Princeton. Uh, she was kind enough to let, she's a wonderful lady. Um, she has some different viewpoints now. And, and as a professor, by the way, she was, I never knew what her own ideology was. I, you know, it was, it was, I guess that was, which were appropriate for the class. It was a class, it was a graduate school class in congressional politics that she led me into as a freshman, which I was very grateful for. A seminar, seven kids or so, well, you know, young adults, I guess they were. I was a kid. Uh, I was 16 or 17, probably 17 then. Uh, and I was very, uh, really enjoyed that experience. I don't know if it necessarily informed my run for Congress later on, but it certainly gave me background knowledge about what that was, right? I mean, I, I, I had interned one year on Capitol Hill, so I had that. But this provided that kind of analytical analytical piece about that, which later, ironically, went on to be a career of mine for 10 years. I served in Congress, which was a huge honor. You started an internet company when you were in college called American Information Systems uh, with a couple of servers in your dorm rooms. And uh, that was a small-scale internet service that you ended up selling for quite a bit of money, like a few years after you got out of college. So you obviously had some aptitude for that. Yeah. So I, I would say, you know, if, if my, my, my father, you know, math and physics, my mom is brilliant, poetry, uh, English. She actually makes documentaries now. Um, so she's a documentarian. She tells stories, I guess is how you could say it. Uh, I, have, I have sort of two passions. One is entrepreneurship and business. Uh, the other is politics and public service. And so and from a young age, I was active as an entrepreneur, David. So I sold tomatoes that I grew in a stand in the neighborhood. People, you remember Michael J. Fox's character on Family Ties, Alex Keaton? Right? I do, in fact. Yes, yes. Yeah, I do so people said I was like Alex Keaton. Now, he was conservative. I, I wasn't, but uh, I was very entrepreneurial from a very young age. Uh, and so it really wasn't a surprise to anybody when I start, and, and that gets to going to Russia. I, I went there really as a 17 year old alone first of all it took some talking into to, for my parents to let I me bet, go yeah. i feel like what are you doing you're 17 i'm like i'm off to moscow for the summer this was a very 
heady time, right? This is when the Berlin Wall had fell. Yes. Communism fell. It was a, it was a free for all. It was obviously before any of the bad stuff like uh, Putin or any of that. It was Boris Yeltsin, very exciting time. And there was a sense that maybe a market economy could be established. Yeah. Right. In in retrospect, we we all sort of weep at the opportunities lost, right? And and the way that that went. Yes. So I went there and boy, did I meet some characters. Uh, This was, um, I guess the year, you'll appreciate this, uh, David, but I think it was a 92 uh, because it was just after you know, Bill Clinton had been, been nominated for president. So I met somebody who'd been a Jerry Brown delegate and was growing mushrooms in bathtubs in Moscow mm-hmm. as, a, as an entrepreneurial venture. Uh, the one that I sort of found my way into was uh, trading on the Russian commodities exchange. They traded cement and privatization vouchers. Why? Because, you know, you know the Chicago, Chicago Board of Trade and all yeah, of those, course. like seats cost a million dollars. To be a pit trader costs 25 cents a day, David. So I you see. pay 25 cents and boom, you're on there. You also didn't have to speak Russian well because you had the hand signals. And I learned that, you know, I learned some basic Russian, a couple under words. Uh, not good Russian. Uh, you know, not very much. I speak Spanish and German. I would never say I speak Russian, hardly any. But um, it, I, it was just the hand signals that I was able to... Uh, to do that and, and enjoy that. And uh, it was a really great experience as a 17-year-old uh, yeah. to be able to to be part of but that. This, but this speaks to that entrepreneurial spirit that you uh, talked about. You, When you came home, you helped your parents digitize their business. And ultimately, they became an online greeting card business. And this is how most people know the name Blue Mountain Pretty yeah, they me. might know BlueMountain.com, right? So so you mentioned I started my first company in college, American Information Systems, Internet Access Provider, started with two friends I met through college. They were at U of I, Champaign. Uh-huh. I, I met through one of my good friends at Princeton, who they were high school friends of his. We talked, we were all entrepreneurial. We said, what can we, what can we do? We don't have much money. I think between the three of us, we had our bar mitzvah savings. We put together <laughs> maybe $5,000, which uh-huh. was all the money in the world at the time. And we said, what can we even... So we, we started an ISP, Internet Service Provider. At that time, it was dial-up access. Remember? Yeah, yeah I do. Remember those days? Yes, I do. So we basically got a PC, a bank of modems. We sold dial-up access to the internet. Uh, it was only two or three years later that we raised capital. And I remember it was all the capital in the world to me is at that time, probably a 19 or 20-year-old, $3 million. Somebody invested in our company. I was like, wow, somebody's entrusting us with $3 million. And then we grew that and we sold it a few years later. During the same time period I was doing the ISP, I had the discussion with my my parents my, uh, about how we could do something online with kind of the family company. So that's bluemountain.com. Uh, my father, remember his, his science background, also actually programmed the algorithm for the electronic greeting cards at that time. And then we licensed, uh, and I helped with that, a lot of additional content. It was a lot more than the traditional poetry of my mother. It was a broad diversity of content. During its height, bluemountain.com was the sixth most popular site on the internet, uh, David, for uh, a month or two. That was 98, 99, something like that. Propitious because you sold the company uh, at around that time. Yep. And you sold it for a lot of money, $780 million, which sounds like a real, uh, an, an awful lot of money for a couple of hippies who started so, in their yeah, some, some of that is Some of that is funny money, David, because it was some of it was in stock, restricted. The company well, bought it well, went bankrupt. No, so, no, no, no worries. And, and it was we, a good and deal, we didn't own the whole thing you either. Made, you, made so a good, people, you made a good deal. Yeah, no, it was a great you deal. Made a good it was deal. a great deal, right? Absolutely. You, and and uh, no question about it. Uh, I, the, my, my path with Pro Flowers was more traditional and harder, meaning we yeah, built it over a decade or two. We raised capital. We went public. You know, kind of the, that's the only company I've ever taken public. So that was, we really had to grow it through those internet natter, nader years, right? Those low years uh, of skepticism. Remember, there was that big 
bust, right? 2001-02. So Pro Flowers, we launched in 97. We sold our first flowers in 98. Went public in it's 03. It's an online florist. Yeah, proflowers.com. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then we sold it in 07, which actually is what in many ways precipitated my run for Congress because I was out of the private sector at that point. I sold my main company, which was Pro Flowers. I had other stuff we can talk about, but that's kind of what enabled me to go. No, I mean, you had like 20 different enterprises going over, yeah, over I those did. years. I mean, you were a, and you were, you were a self-made, very wealthy person in your early 20s. Yep. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. There are a couple of things I wanted to ask you about before we make the turn into your political career. One is that around the the time that you came back from college, you came out to your parents. And tell me about that and how that went down. How how hard was it to do? Yeah. And and how did they receive it? Yeah, it's it's hard for any kid. It's probably, I hope it's easier these days, right? Like, you know, I, 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 I do, but at that period in time, uh, cause I was what, 21, 22, something like that. Uh, certainly was a big surprise to my parents. They had no idea. Uh, secondly, I think I knew that they would be uh, fine because I, I did know that they had some gay friends. You know, I, 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 they once had a lawyer that was gay and they had an architect that was gay. So, I mean, I, it wasn't like, I, it wasn't as hard as it would be as if I thought they were like religiously hostile to it, but it's still very hard, to, you know, for that. And, and they were in surprise. And then, you know, my mother, of course, then became what you, for a brief period of time, you know, kind of one of these, what you might call super P-flag moms, uh, you know, where she just got really into it for a while. She even did a documentary, uh, her first documentary, I think, on, um, on, on kids coming out. It was very good because it had kids coming out, like a more Mormon family and, and, and other types of backgrounds where it was harder. And tell me about your own feelings and how, how long were you struggling with the, the decision to tell them and, and with, with questions of, of, of your own sexuality and so Yeah. On? Well, I was, I was busy, David. I mean, we talked about starting all these companies. So it seems, I, yes. I mean, yes. It, wasn't, it wasn't like I, 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 it's true. I didn't really date girls that much, maybe a couple of times, but I, it wasn't, it was, I probably wouldn't have dated boys either, even if I was out. I was just, I was just very busy, David. I mean, I was, you know, loading, I, literally like, you know, before Valentine's Day, which still sends shutters down my spine, not romantic ones, because I was loading flowers on the truck, you know, at midnight, the day before Valentine's to get out the flowers in time. Um, so I was just very busy as an entrepreneur and as a college student. So it, it, it I, I don't know if it would have been different if I was, was straight. I don't think it would have. I was just, I was very professionally busy those years. So I, I, I don't feel so. Uh, so you didn't have you didn't have you didn't have much of a personal life at that point. Yeah, not in co- I mean, well, in college, I, I my personal life was business, right? I mean, I did the mm-hmm. academic side. I was in a fraternity, the G Phi Gamma Delta. I enjoyed mm-hmm. that. I mean, I found time for some of those things, but I I don't know where I would have fit, you know, dating into that. So no, I didn't really, I didn't really date in college. Um, maybe one formal dance I invited a girl to or something, but I I just I it wouldn't have it wouldn't have fit into what I was doing. I know you're married now and you have uh, two children. Tell me what the the Supreme Court decision back in 2015 Obergefell meant to you at that time, and 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 how do you feel now? As you look at this Supreme Court, do you have concerns uh, about where this court might go? Marlon and I have been together, I think, 19 years now. 
when we started dating, marriage didn't really seem like a possibility. I, 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 don't, I, I don't remember the exact years, but maybe some states had domestic partnership. Our state didn't have any of it. It wasn't something you really, you really thought about a lot, but obviously the, the fight for marriage equality was inspiring. I was in Congress when Oberfell went down, David, and I, like a lot of others, thousands of others, I gathered outside the Supreme Court steps that morning. We anticipated, you know, it was, they didn't know exactly what day would come down, uh, but we all, we all went out there. And I just remember seeing the runners. You remember, this is before they had leaks, right? But you remember, they, so the runners- yes, of would, course. Yeah, I remember. The quaint times. Quaint yes. times. The runners came down. Uh, we, we, we knew they decided. We didn't know which way. Uh, and just the sheer, and by the way, of the thousands of people there, there were probably 99% on the side of pro-equality. There were just mm-hmm. you know, a few grumpy people there on the other side, but the thousands of people. And it was just a moment of sheer joy uh, and celebration. And how do you personally feel? It was, it was, it was just wonderful to see that, that validation. I mean, I was in Congress. I knew that Congress couldn't pass same-sex marriage at that time. It wasn't going to happen. So like in a lot of times in history, we look for the, the courts to protect our rights as a minority. Uh, and they did. And it was a moment of just exuberance. And what that, about right now when you yeah. see what happened, uh, you know, uh, in the Dobbs yeah. case, uh, uh, reversing Roe versus Wade and some of the language, certainly uh, Clarence Thomas's uh, language uh, said the same theory that there is no right to privacy from which these decisions sprung. Are, should people be concerned? It's scary, David. And it's also just, again, counter to this narrative that I grew up with and you do too about the Supreme Court, you know, uh, ending separate but equal schooling and integrating, uh, you know, a business. It really, everything they've done protecting the minority. That's what we always, you know, wow, we have this amazing institution, Oberfell, another example. Uh, and now to see it going the other way where they're saying we're thrusting all this into the realm of politics, we're thrusting the minority treatment into the whims of the majority is very scary, David. I mean, of course, for same-sex marriage, that affects me personally, but also for everything that affects minority rights in our country. Another thing that happened in this same period of time in your life, first of all, I should ask you this. You didn't come out publicly for some time after you told your parents and when you were in public life. Was there ever a fear that this would be a liability uh, for you in politics? Because you clearly wanted a political career. I think one of your classmates once said your dream was to become governor of Colorado. So, yeah, I actually, I, I think absolutely I thought that if uh, at the time that, you know, it would be unlikely that a gay person would became, become governor. I, I never really had that like, oh, I got to be governor type of thing. Um, there were obviously uh, one or two gay people in Congress, Barney Frank, of course, who later became mm-hmm. a friend um, at some point, Tammy Baldwin. Who, who also took some time to reveal that he was gay. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I came out before I ran for Congress. Um, but, you know, it, it was in this very weird realm, David, of public versus private, because my family knew and some of and my friends knew. But like somehow at that point in time, it was like one of those things that didn't tell you kind of set it on the record. The press was still sort of circumspect about reporting it. It was just mm-hmm. an awkward moment in time. Right. So like um, no, I, I had resolved that if somebody in the press had asked me, I would have answered, but nobody, asked, nobody asked me. Um, yeah. and I was, you know, out to my immediate friends. Mm-hmm. So it was just, a. it's, I don't think we're at that. Hopefully we're at a different moment in time now where you don't have to kind of mm-hmm. be asked to say on the record. I mean, you see like Olympic athletes who just sort of casually post, you know, photos of them in their, their scenes. Well, I, I have to say, uh, this is the, the, the amount of progress that we've made on this issue. Yeah is breathtaking. 
unlike anything that I've seen yeah. in my lifetime. So, so you'll appreciate this, David. I actually did think about how do you formally come out? Um, and so I was assisted by Victory Fund and they stra- I strategized with them about, about how to do this. But what we, we just decided is I went to the local paper and we gave them an exclusive. I went mm-hmm. to the Daily Camera, our older paper, and said, we have something <laughs> to say. Uh, but I said, you can't like lead with it because it's not news. Pr- you just have to, but we want it to be official in print somewhere <laughs> that I'm gay. Mm-hmm. But like, we don't, we don't want this to be like, he's gay. So you can look up that article. I think it was from 06 or 07, but I think we did it well, but it was just a strange thing to have to figure out. How do you, yeah. how do you just sort of let people know that you are gay and you're not hiding it without making that like this, the narrative of your life, uh, which was, I hope that's easier now, David, for the next generation. I really do. But it was actually quite hard back then. Uh, we worked with Chuck Wolf, a fellow named Chuck Wolf and the, the, and the uh, Victory Fund on the strategy. And then I just wound up working with a a sympathetic reporter at the local paper, and you can you can look up that article. But that the other know. the the other thing that you did at that time was you changed your name. Your name you grew up with the name Schutz. Is that did I pronounce it properly? Yeah, Jared Polis Schutz. I uh, I, I I still was my name, but I, I changed it to Jared Schutz Polis. That was that was earlier. That was well before I came out. That was no right, but it was right before it was sort of before right before yeah. you ran for office. And I was wondering, was there a, was that a consideration that Schutz was not a was not a terrific ballot name. Not, not so much. It was more I um, to honor my my grandmother. I mentioned her a few times. June Polis. Uh, I was very, very close to her. She just passed away a few years ago. Um, she actually would have turned a hundred uh, la- about a year ago. But she, she lived into her late nineties. So, th- and I was very, very close to her. And and mm-hmm. um, and and that. And then I I had a high school friend that had diabetes. So we did a, a a fundraiser to reveal my new name, where people donated to charity, and it was it was a fun event. I think it was around the time of my twenty fifth birthday, if I'm not mistaken. Right, and also around the time that you were twenty five, you you decided to run for the Colorado State Board of Education, and you did an interesting thing. I mean, you had been active. You had identified education as a big. Yeah. issue of yours. Tell me, first of all, why? Yeah. Why was that of concern? And explain your educational or your philosophy of education to me, because we've got a raging debate in this country about it. And you're, you know, you've established yourself on one side of it. And I think it's, uh, it's important thing to, to explore. And, you know, I, I work closely with uh, President Obama on education. I was yes. a, a big, a big fan of Secretary Duncan and we work closely yeah with the administration. I think we were probably one of the closest allies in Congress and I was on the education committee and it wasn't always easy. Because they, but one of the things they, they supported was the establishment of charter schools. Yeah. And you had a, you had established on your own, using your own yep. wealth, you had established charter schools in Colorado. Yeah, so 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 I, um, first of all, I, you know, I, it, this is in the year 2000, I, I was honored to be able to run for your state board. I didn't want a full-time public service job. I was still very much in business, Stephen, right? So I was saying, what can I do a few days a month, you know, kind of thing, because I'm, I'm active. And I looked at this opportunity and it was a six-year term, which was attractive because I could just run and do it for, do it for six years. I didn't, I, I, I'm, I'm fine with politics, David, right? But like, you don't do it to run. Like running is not the fun part. <laughs> like it's okay. And, and I'm, right. I can do it joyously. But I was, you know, I said, okay, if I get elected, I could do this for six years. I can, you know, I'll be in business. I do this two, three days a month. It's great. Um, I you know, let, 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 yeah. let me interrupt you just one second on that point. You don't seem like, you're not like your traditional politician. You don't seem like a backslapping uh, schmoozer. Uh, did it come hard, hard to you to go out there and do that? 
you know, I'm competitive, David. You have to be competitive in business and politics. So you do what yeah. you got to do. I've been to, as you can guess, more chicken dinners than you'd ever care to know. I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you do what you got to do. But I, I, I don't think I have an aversion to it or an affinity to it. I just uh, see it as what you got to do and you, to win and, and, you, and you work harder than anybody else. And I always have. And in that race, you, uh, you ran against a state senator who was yeah. twice your age. You were 25 years old. And you, you, you used some of your wealth to, to run that campaign, as you did again when you ran for Congress in uh, 2008. Talk about that. Yeah. Because there, you know, people, there are people who would say, that doesn't seem fair that someone can just vastly outspend their opponent because they have great wealth. Yeah, look, no, nothing seems fair in politics, uh, David. And I think the truth of the matter is that People consider it less fair when their elected officials are beholden to special interests and are, you know, somehow working for the donor class rather than working for them. So for me, it's something I've always been proud of. We, we, we do raise money. We raise small donations. I've, I've always been proud of that. I never took PAC money, but I, but I, I, I certainly, this has afforded me a degree of independence and in being able to say, uh, I'm fighting for the people, you know, not as the top thing I run on, David, but whenever it comes up, as you just brought it up, I think our response is is a strong one that, look, I'm not beholden to anybody but you, and I'm working every day for you. Uh, and I've also been a strong supporter of campaign finance reform and even public financing and campaigns, because I think that what happens with the influence of the special interests, it often co-ops the public interest uh, in the decision-making process. And I've seen that up close and personal too many times during my time in public service. You know, your, your tenure in Congress, you, you mentioned you were there for 10 years, was interesting. Because in some ways you were kind of quintessentially left, and in some ways you were uh, very much charted your own course. I mean, charter schools was one, is one of those issues, and I meant to. I was sorry to ask you before about that. Talk to me about why you feel so strongly that the, the charter schools have merit. These are these are schools that are, are sort of privately run, publicly supported. Tell me why, and Colorado's been a leader on this. Tell, tell me why they're so important to you. Yeah, so, uh, and I later went on to actually start a couple, David, and I'll talk about yeah. the, the, the two that I started. One, New America School, we focused on 16 to 20-year-old new immigrants to have the opportunity to learn English and get a high school diploma. So many of them had dropped out or weren't thriving in other public school programs. We offered day or night program because many students work during the day. And in some of the areas we're in, we we're the only night program, public high school. So we opened three of those and now, and then two in New Mexico. And I was superintendent for a few years and I really enjoyed that work. The other was the Academy of Urban Learning I co-founded for youth and transitional housing and homeless youth uh, in Denver. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for me, um, it's always been about how we can get kids a great education and encouraging the kind of creativity that of course charter schools bring, but not only charter schools, districts can do it, you know, innovation schools. We have many different ways of happening. It's important for anybody who supports the concept of charter schools as I do to also start by saying, it's not that charter schools are better or worse than other public schools. It's just a different governance model that allows for innovation. Some of them innovate and they don't do as well. Others innovate and they excel. We need to expand and replicate what works in education, whether it's on the district side or the charter school side. And yes, we need the courage to change what doesn't work. And whether that's on the district side or the charter school side, uh, it's really important. I, I see education as really that great equalizer in society that provides that pathway of opportunity from kids or families that are disadvantaged because of their income or their race or their geography. Now, you've tangled with 
unions over this. Uh, teachers unions are not supportive of this. Uh, and I have to ask you in this context, uh, you were unhappy and you said so uh, with President Biden's position on charters. Uh, talk about that. Because, you know, you've been very open. One of your virtues is you say what you think. And on this, you definitely took a divergent path. Yeah, this was uh, really, uh, you know, we, we worked closely with President Obama, as you know, and helped get some of this uh, language inserted and the funding inserted, both for uh, charter schools and, and, and race to the top. Um, in fact, you'll appreciate this, David, with, you know, there was a small piece of sort of governor's discretionary education money as part of the CARES Act. It was called the um, uh, GEAR funding. We created our kind of our own state race to the top with, uh, we were able to get about, we didn't call it that. You guys had a branding problem, David. I'm sorry to say, I think you're aware of that. We well, well, you, you could have helped, you know, you yeah. could have given us advice. I would have taken it. We called it, we called it rise. But anyway, we got out, uh, I want to say somewhere on the order of about 30 to 40 million, uh, which for a state is significant in kind of these innovation mm-hmm. uh, grants that we got out. And, and the legacy, by the way, of what the Obama administration done is still very much here today. I was visiting St. Vrain School District. They have a great career and innovation center. They were one of the first winners of the race and top funds. But we digress. Um, so on the charter schools, uh, President Biden had put out, well, I should say the Department of Education had put out some draft rules that would have made eligibility much more difficult for charter school funding, which this is the startup funding, which is so critical for innovation, David, because before, you know, charter schools don't get any funding until they open. And we all know they need that startup funding for that six months or a year before to be able to get going and get off the ground. And uh, this really would have hamstrung a lot of that. Thankfully, the administration did listen to some of what uh, we had to say. Again, if it was up to me or probably President Obama, certainly don't want to speak for him. These rules would have been unnecessary. Additional hurdles would have been unnecessary. But they did They did adopt them to make them a bit more workable. So a lot of the what we most feared and, and what they were doing has been, has been uh, taken out of the final rules. Although, again, the whole direction is somewhat questionable. But at the very least, this is a very important uh, resource for anybody starting a new charter school in those first couple of years. I know I'm speeding through your career yeah. because you did work, uh, you had a lot of, uh, in a time when it was difficult to pass legislation in Congress because uh, you weren't in the majority party for much of that time, you passed a lot of bills. But I want to talk to you about your governorship because Another place where you sort of departed from orthodoxy was in the dealing with the pandemic. And I I want you to talk about that in your decision making there, because Colorado opened up faster. You were resistant to some of the uh, some of the recommendations of, of the federal government in terms of the timing of these things. I'm spitballing this, but I presume you also probably clashed with the teachers unions again on the opening of schools. Am I right about no, that? We, they were, they, we brought them in early and they were good partners, David. Okay. So okay, I'll, good, I'll get good. to that. By the way, one other area that I, you can mention that I probably, I, I, I work closely with, with President Obama on was, was international trade. I, I was part of a group of Democrats that was very much focused on supporting his trade agenda. The Trans-Pacific and, uh, Partnership. Yeah, it was Trade and, Authority at the time to negotiate mm-hmm. that. We, we got that to hit. We got that. And, um, boy, the world would be a better place if we had a rules-based system for trade. Um, look at where we are today. And I think it really proved uh, the case. And, more, and more leverage with China. Absolutely. Uh, more leverage with China, better labor protections, better environmental protections. I, I was I'm very proud to have worked with them on that. I wish it had a more successful outcome, but we certainly did but our this part. Isn't, you, you know that this is not the uh, 
this is not a popular position. It may not be a popular position in either party now. The 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 appetite for trade. Yeah, is, it's, it's okay in Colorado, David. Uh, uh, right, right. I, and you know, there's a few other states like Washington State where you know Democrats have traditionally been been pro trade, and in our state they have. Uh, I get it's politically harder in other states, and that's the reality that that President Obama encountered. Um, it takes, I'm sure, it takes some degree of courage everywhere. But sometimes there's just a right and a wrong answer. And having rules based system for uh, global trade and protecting environmental rights and labor rights and reducing tariffs, it's just the right way to go. I've, and I've been somewhat outspoken about calling on President Biden to, uh, as a way to combat inflation, reduce uh, punitive tariffs, uh, both on now the solar side they've dispensed with that, but also additional Trump tariffs. Uh, absolutely, they should drop those. Uh, and and I, I think there was a study that showed that would reduce inflation by something like half a percent, which um, every every bit is very important. It's interesting these political these 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 challenges, right? Because reducing the tariffs on China has a political downside to it. You know, again, the real answer would have been to have a a global partnership like the TPP that had a rules based system for trade that eventually attracted China to play by the fair competition rules of other countries. And, and that was mm-hmm. what the president's goal was. We don't want to spend this whole time reminiscing about no, no, President no, no, Obama, no. but yeah, yeah, but I mean, that's his, I was, uh, I was I, just, I spent a lot of time reminiscing, yeah, but, but I was, I was, uh, I was an ardent supporter. So actually I had the most personal interactions with the president and his team over that issue because there were only, you know, a 10 or 15 of us that were kind of active on, on pushing that and number of meetings in the white house and, you know, we, we, we did our best on that. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. Let's move forward to the, the pandemic. Tell me about your sort of evolution of thinking as a governor. Uh, because you you departed from the yeah. sort of protocol that most Democratic governors follow. So so we we did prioritize, and among other things, for getting the schools open early. So the majority of our school districts were open all of last year. Uh, so so uh, many of them were just closed for a month or two, right? It was the final kind of a uh, spring of of what was that twenty, right? And then they were fully open last year. The, the, like everywhere, some of the cities, Denver, for instance. They were fully open the second semester of last year, but they had some issues the first semester. So what we did is we said, we're going to create a back-to-school task force. This is early last school year. Remember, majority of our school districts are back, but our big urban ones aren't. And so we pulled together, we invited the teachers union, we invited superintendents, we invited health officials, we invited parents. Uh, we had, you know, 2020, we said, what do you need to be back? What do you need to be back? So it included things that the teachers asked for that we did. We said, we're going to send free medical grade masks to every teacher who wants them. And we did that. And some wanted them, some didn't, but they were every every week. We prioritized teachers for vaccines. That came a little bit later, but we made the commitment that we would prioritize them for vaccines. So so it was, it was you know, the teachers are important stakeholders, David, right? I mean, whether you agree or disagree with you on every issue, they're very important. And the Absolutely. work they do is very important. Listen, I, I, listen, I think they're the most essential workers in our yep. country. So I, I don't have any... Yeah, uh, I certainly don't want to leave anybody so, with any so, other so, impression. But it wasn't yeah. just the schools. No. Although I do want to ask you, because there was a tremendous backlash around the country among parents that I think they're still reverberating today. Was was it a mistake for other states not to follow your uh, lead? And, and should the administration have been stronger in terms of urging the reopening of schools? 
Yeah, I mean, we were we were thrilled. There, there's local dynamics at play, David. So, I mean, in our state, and I think in most states, schools are under the governance of a of a local board. At least in our state, I don't know if this was the case in other states. I mean, the governor certainly wouldn't have authority to say you have to be in person. I mean, they decide how and where to deliver their services, mm-hmm. and so it was a matter of kind of leading through persuasion. Uh, again, we had more than half the districts fully open all last year. No, you know. And that tended to be in the rural and exurban areas, but but like other areas, the cities were just a little bit slower. So we had to say, what do you need? We want no excuses. How can we address all the issues you raise so that you're you're back and educating kids? But we also handled the pandemically, you know, beyond education, as you indicated, we had one of the shortest shutdown periods in the country in Colorado. And then we also never went back to the kind of statewide restrictions, mask restrictions or vaccine passports that other some other states had. Uh, mostly for for a few reasons. Uh, one is that I value freedom as a core value, right? Um, uh, that's just how I grew up. My parents is hippies. I'm pro you know marijuana legalization, pro marry who you want, pro choice. So of course, pro empowering people with the information they need to make good decisions. But I also wanted to use our soapbox in a responsible way, and so we certainly through the uh, power of oratory, which I'm perhaps mediocre at best compared to President Obama, right? I really did my best to use that power persuasion to wear a mask, get vaccinated. And then, of course, again, there were some of our cities that had, you know, mask requirements longer. I, I don't think any of them had vaccine requirements in Colorado. They didn't. But um, other than for like healthcare workers, but I mean, not for to go to a restaurant or something. I, I think I saw that in some of the other states. And do you think, um, I mean, I, I guess critics would say it was imprudent to uh, leap out ahead of the, you know, of the recommendations of the CDC and the federal government on these. Well, things. the recommendations are are valid. If you want to reduce your risk of getting COVID, absolutely wear a medical grade mask. And we verified that every day of the week. Uh, it wasn't about requirements, it was about recommendations. We had the ninth or 10th lowest death rate overall. Again, am I somewhat proud of that for Colorado's behalf? I, I am, but you also have to look at how poorly America did in terms of our death rate compared to other nations. But yeah, we had the ninth or 10th lowest death, that, a death rate, one of the strongest economic rebounds. We have more people employed today than we had before the pandemic. Uh, and we had shorter, shorter shutdowns in our schools in most other states. So, you know, it always, everybody's going to subjectively look at how they want to sort of grade performance. But I think by and large, the people of Colorado were happy with the approach I took. And first and foremost, I tried to lead with data and science wherever it took us. I, I want to talk about another issue that I know you've had a great interest in, and that's climate. And, you know, you you in Colorado are experiencing some of the effects of it. The smoke from wildfires have, have impacted on your uh, state, the, their, you know, uh, Denver's been locked in at times by that smoke and so on. And I know you've been very much on this issue throughout your public career. Where are we now? We just had a Supreme Court ruling, same Supreme Court, that limits the government's ability to regulate power plant emissions. You're also an oil and gas state there. You you have oil and gas there. Where are we and what should we be doing and what uh, as a country and what can you do as a governor? You know, David, if I if I have a um, a weakness in politics and perhaps as in life, it's sometimes that I can be too future oriented or too far ahead of the curve. It's good to be a little bit ahead of the curve, but not too far. So one of the things I ran on when I ran for governor was 100% renewable energy by 2040. That was our pledge. People thought that was very pie in the sky at the time. Nobody thought we could do it. Uh, now it's I've actually. Um, uh, let's just say that some of our environmental community here think we should go a lot faster than that. And I, I try to be realistic about it. We actually have locked in in our state 
And we're not too concerned with the Supreme Court precedents as it affects us, by the way. Obviously, we, we, we are with how it affects other states. We'll be at 80% renewable energy here in Colorado for our grid within just seven and a half more years by 2030. So probably sometime in 2029, we'll pass 80%. Uh, and then I'm very confident we'll get to that effectively 100% by 2040, that final 20% in, in that next decade. And we're setting up the way to do that now. Simply economics driving it, David, uh, solar and wind. Uh, are far less expensive than coal. Coal is the highest cost form of power we have on the grid. The sooner we can retire those plants uh, and move to lower cost energy sources, the more it'll save consumers money. And then of course, we have to have uh, some of that base load for management. And that's where we look at storage, geothermal, electric, uh, hydro in states that have more hydro. We don't have a lot of opportunities for that here. But you know very well that no matter what you do, you know the climate is one that's shared. And so what happens in other states impacts on you, the wildfires, you know, that drift east from California and, uh, and surrounding states. So what, you know, we're as a country, yeah. as a country, what do we need to be doing that we're not doing? So, so first of all, we need to prepare for what's happening, David. So uh, at the same time, we, we absolutely, and I hope that, you know, Senator Manchin and others support a, a climate component to um, whatever they, they get done through through reconciliation. That's very important. I hope other states show leadership and frankly, other countries, including through multilateral trade agreements. Another area that they're important is for climate change, reducing carbon emissions. But we also need to, while we're on all fronts trying to reduce the impact, prepare for that impact. So, you know, just last Friday, I was in the Peons Basin Rio Blanco County, Northwest Colorado, looking at the wild horse herds uh, and looking at the dry conditions uh, in the BLM lands there. This morning, I was in Evergreen talking about our fire preparedness in Colorado and how we're increasing our support for fire risk mitigation projects, working with Conservation Corps, AmeriCorps uh, folks. Uh, but the truth is, what they used to call a drought is in many ways the new norm. And maybe we'll have a wet year every now and then, but especially across the American West, preparing for these hotter, drier conditions, year-round risk of fire, more scarcity of water resources. This is a reality. Uh, and so we are really focused and we're getting a new sort of climate resiliency effort in our state and creating a plan around how we can have agriculture, habitat conservation, continued growth of suburban and exurban areas in, in, an, in, an, in an environment where the climate is changing uh, and we need to adapt. I, I guess my question, my question to you, and I, I want to move on because we're running out of time, but I guess my question to you is, what do you need done uh, nationally? Yeah. Uh, that would help you in this in this uh, cause? Two things. One is, of course, we want our nation and the world to show climate leadership and reduce emissions. So absolutely, America should act as, as the, the wealthiest nation in the world, and we should bring others along through multilateral trade agreements. Absolutely. Second is interstate fire preparedness. We absolutely should have additional federal investment in hard capabilities, meaning helicopters, slurry bombers, as well as direct support of mitigation, especially around U.S. Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management lands. When, when, when people from the East look at the West, you have to realize the federal government owns big parts of our states. In Colorado, it's 40% of our state. I think in Utah, it's probably 80% of the states federally owned. It's something like that. So we really do need uh, to the federal government to do kind of what we're doing in Colorado on a larger scale, which is up our game on fire preparedness. Let me ask you, as we wrap up, uh, I was really intrigued by your tweet uh, after uh, Governor DeSantis, you know, decided that he was going to go after Disney because he didn't like their posture on his, what, what's become known as the Don't Say Gay Bill, the bill relating to what happens in, in schools uh, and what's taught in 
schools, you accused him of operating as a socialist and you invited Disney to come to a state where they could express themselves without fear of retribution. Hey, here it is. Florida's authoritarian social attacks on the private sector are driving businesses away. In Colorado, we don't meddle in the affairs of companies like Disney or Twitter. Hey, Disney, we're ready for Mountain Disneyland and Twitter. We're ready for Twitter HQ2, whoever your owners are. Yeah. Uh, take that, uh, Elon Musk, Jared Polis on Twitter. So talk about that. Yeah. So first, because everybody said, well, so, well, maybe this guy's going to go national. Well, so first of all, certainly not. This was authoritarian socialists, certainly not disparaging democratic socialists. I don't uh, agree with them necessarily on, on economic issues, but um, we were talking about authoritarian socialism. What does that mean? It means government calling out specific companies, right? And, and that's ex not only around rhetoric, bad enough, I don't do that, but also around policy and essentially what the governor uh, of Florida did is on policy, say we are going to, as retribution for your free speech and your policies, in this case, pro-equality LGBT uh, policies, we are going to remove tax benefits that your company gets. Absolutely wrong on, on rhetoric, on policy. I support free speech in the private sector. That was the point of that. You know, whether it's a conservative or liberal company, there's a home for them in Colorado. Uh, we value what they bring. Um, you know, we have thriving nonprofits here, like Focus on the Family, that might not agree of, of myself as somebody who's Jewish or somebody who's in a same-sex relationship, but we value what they bring to their state. Never would it even cross my mind to threaten to say you're losing your tax status or anything like that, because they provide a real service to those in need and those of faith. And, and I value all organizations, nonprofit and for-profit, that play a critical role in our market economy. And let's talk about the national Seeing Governor DeSantis seems it seems that he is focused on maybe running for president in twenty twenty four. First of all, I presume you'll support President Biden if he runs for reelection. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think whether it's you know Trump who runs against him or DeSantis who runs against him or whoever else does, uh, there's a very stark contrast there. First and foremost, it's about competence, uh, it's about rationality. And it's about protecting liberal democracy. So there was a poll today in the New York Times that showed him, at, and I'm sure you saw it, 33% approval rating, 64% of Democrats said they didn't want him to run. Why is he Why is he doing so poorly? And what advice would you have for him as someone who's never lost an election? Well, look, um, I, I focus on on policy. Um, I, I, you know, messaging, I, I guess, comes out of policy. So what have we focused on in Colorado? When I gave my State of the State address last January, I, I sang the old Simon and Garfunkel song. Was, we said 50 ways to save you money. And we challenged the legislature to do 50 ways to save people money, address cost of living, uh, reducing vehicle registration fees, reducing taxes, taking, making things like diapers not taxed. We got, anyway, we got 100 done. We got 100 ways that we're saving people money. And sure, I'm running on it, right? And, and um. I you know, would encourage the president to do things like, why not you know, make passport renewals free, open up our national parks, half price or quarter price on at least weekdays. You know, everything that we can do to save people money, A, to show people that we get it, we're elected, we get the pain point, you know, and, and, and costs have gone up. So what can we do to address that? And then secondly, these are real solutions to put money back in people's pockets and make a difference in their quality of life. And so we should really be proud of being a solutions-oriented party uh, that helps save people money and uh, helps families get ahead. Let, let's for a second say he doesn't run for re-election. 
I know you're running for re-election right now, so this is a question that your uh, consultants will wince if you answer. But I feel I should ask: Would you would do you, do you think that uh, uh, what you're doing in Colorado can go national? Would you see yourself as someone who would want to be part of that discussion, that debate? Look, um, no, I'm, I'm not interested in that. I'm really excited by this job that I'm doing and I, uh, health permitting will serve another four years if the people of Colorado hire me for another four years and I'll be very excited to do it. And what do you think the Democratic Party would need if he didn't run? You know, I, I, I'm not a pundit, right, David? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, again, I'm this a, is your chance. You yeah. can be one. No, I'm just a policy guy. So I, I'm going to, you know, I like folks who I agree with on policy. And then, of course, the second part of that is being able to sell it and have the right messaging based on the policy. But I do believe there's good policy and there's bad policy. There's right and wrong. And, and I, I want somebody who's right on policy. And, and President Biden is right on many policies. You and I talked about charter schools. We may have some disagreements, but on many policies, the broad international coalition uh, against mm -hmm. the war in Ukraine and Russia, he's Absolutely. right on policy. Yeah. A bipartisan infrastructure act, that's something that's eluded prior presidents and legislators, he got it done. Yes. You know, these are, these are major well, you Ben, you benefit from the Rescue Act as well. Absolutely. And we're putting it to very good use to save people money here in Colorado, uh, make housing more affordable and reduce costs. Mm -hmm. Governor, it's been great to be with you. I uh, look forward to seeing you down the line in Colorado and elsewhere. And uh, good luck to you in the fall. Well, you'll, you'll be here more, I hear. So when you're around for, for yes. family reasons, give us a holler. I will do so. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.